Are you looking for alternative investments and tangible assets that help you build and protect your wealth while empowering your financial future? Look no further than Eckerd Enterprises. With over 37 years of experience in the industry, Eckerd Enterprises is your trusted partner in the world of alternative investments and asset management. They have a track record of success with more than 1,300 investors who are on board and over $700 million in capital invested in tangible assets. Their specialty lies in offering immediate cash flow opportunities through mineral rights investments so that you don't have to wait decades to see your investments pay off. Their unique AML approach, born from decades of experience, focuses on aggregating, maturing, and liquidating assets strategically to maximize return. Join Eckerd Enterprises. Visit EckerdEnterprises.com today to begin your journey toward building and protecting your financial future. Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Financial Residency. I am so excited today to bring you Vina Jetty, who has been so successful in the financial real estate market, bringing on investors, building her own company. And so we're just going to see where this takes us today. Welcome to the show, Vina. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I guess let's start at the beginning. What got you interested in real estate and how did you get started? I got started in real estate. I actually, okay, so I took a little bit of the shortcut into real estate because I come from a real estate family. My mom is a really successful real estate investor. Now my parents are basically retired from their real estate portfolio. They retired early based off it. But so I was always exposed to it. But I went to undergrad. I graduated when I was 20 years old with my degree in finance. And my mom was like, great, you can like work for the family business. And I was like, I'm an adult. I'm going to go and do something totally different on my own, you know, because I'm 20 and I have a degree. So I know everything. I went and I worked in like corporate real estate and made a lot of money for other companies. But I learned from some of the best institutions in the world. And in 2012, my husband and I, so my husband's a physician, he's an anesthesiologist. And that was the year we got married. So it was the first time we paid taxes as two W-2 earners. So he was a W-2 at that time. I was like, what just happened? Our tax bill was like $200,000 or something at that time. And so I call my mom and I'm like, mom, this is crazy. We just paid all these taxes. She was like, quit your job. And I was like, what do you mean quit my job? She's like, well, the IRS does not reward you for being an employee. They reward you for being an employer and a full-time real estate professional. So I was like, well, this seems legitimate. And so I quit my job. And that's how I started investing in real estate was the first year that I was married, our married tax bill was more than I'd ever thought I would pay in taxes. You know, my husband was really supportive. He still works in medicine. And now I just run private equity side of our lives. Did you start out with like single family homes or multifamily yeah. homes or where, yeah, where did you start? So 
Yeah, I did start with single family homes because that's how my parents invested in real estate too, was in single family. So I actually didn't know that people like you and I could buy multifamily. Like I thought Oprah and Jeff Bezos could buy multifamily and like that was it, right? I started with single family and there was a week where I had bought, I put five homes under contract in the same week. And I was like, wow, one, I hate this because I just hated chasing contractors. I hated chasing tenants for rent. I hated being called at like 2 a.m. I hated all of it. And then the second thought I had was, this isn't even scalable. Even if I wanted to get to 10,000 doors, I can never do this with even five homes a week for the rest of my life. It would take me forever to do that. So I was like, okay, there's got to be a better way to do this. And But I really loved residential real estate. And so that's where I kind of discovered multifamily because multifamily was the best mix of both. It was the residential aspect that I loved. It was being able to revitalize communities and invest into local communities, which I love. But then it was also the scale of commercial real estate. And multifamily historically does really well, even through market cycles. So it was also the right risk reward tolerance for my personal portfolio. So it was like the perfect fit for me. I guess, did you find distressed properties and start there and rebuild them? How, what's kind of been your secret sauce? So, well, I don't know. It's so much of a secret sauce. So I, I would change a lot of things if I could go back. Like if I could go back, I would have skipped single family altogether and just gone straight to multifamily. There was no reason for me to make that stop other than I just didn't know what I didn't know. And so if I could go back, I would redo that. But I started buying condos in D.C. and renting those out. So that was like the first footstep into the single family world. Then I started buying houses in Dallas that I thought I would fix and flip. So I was like, oh, I'll buy these from wholesalers or, you know, I tried doing the whole like bird dogging thing, which was not for me. I really hated it. I did it for like all of three days. It was like I quit. But I bought houses from wholesalers and I was planning on taking them, flipping them and then, you know, being like the HGTV stars, right? Like making like a quick 50 grand, 100 grand, whatever. But it doesn't work like that in reality. And then what would happen is I'd be like, oh, wait, but now that it's rehabbed, I like this house and I can rent it out and make so much more money if I keep it. So then I would actually flip it to myself, essentially, and I would get a bank loan and I would pull my money back out of it and then I'd rent it out. But then again, I was stuck with a management issue, which I really hated. So that was how I started. And then I moved into the multifamily space. And in the multifamily space, we bought our first property for 15.9 million. It was not a distressed property, but it was a value add property. And we sold it three years and three months after we bought it for $24 million. So our investors made a significant amount of money on those. Oh my gosh. Now, when you talk about value add, but not distressed, what do you mean by that? So distressed properties are properties that are not doing well, right? Like they might not be meeting debt service. They might not have enough uh, occupancy they might like sometimes you'll have like a whole unit that's burnt and can't be rented out. That's really what we think of when we think of distressed or the sellers in distress. They have to sell for some reason. What we buy is value add, meaning that the property's okay, but it's not at peak performance. It's not operating at the top of the market. So if we go in and we put in, you know, at that time we could put in like four or five thousand dollars a door. That's totally changed today because of inflation and interest and where the markets have moved. But at that time, we can put in like four or $5,000 a door and then rent it out at like two, three, four in Dallas, sometimes $500, $600 premiums and bring it up to market. So we're doing what's called forced appreciation. So we're 
forcing the value to go up on the property because the business of the asset is increasing. And are you doing like cosmetic repairs inside or? Yeah, typically we're doing cosmetic. We will do a heavier lift. Like we'll go down the studs if we need to. But usually our assets are, they were built in the 80s, 90s, or early 2000s. No one has touched them since then. So they need, you know, new paint colors. They need the cabinets refreshed. They need countertops updated and changed out. We need to change the appliances from, you know, the white appliances to stainless steel or black. We need to add washers and dryers. We need to change out flooring, lighting, fixtures, plumbing, things like that. So we're not going in and, you know, taking out all electrical and rewiring. We don't do that typically on our assets. We It doesn't mean we wouldn't, but we usually don't. How do you go about finding these properties? And maybe I'm putting like the cart way before the horse here, but... Yeah, this is a great question. So it depends on what you're targeting. If you're targeting assets like ours that are generally 200 plus units, usually we look at deals that are on the larger side because they're easier to manage, less volatility, less sensitivity to any one thing happening. Usually those are going to be through a broker. Though I will say we've had several off-market deals come to us from like friends and colleagues at our networks in the space. We all kind of know each other for the most part. So if I'm thinking of selling an asset, I might send it to a friend and be like, hey, you want to look at this first? You can look at it and see what it looks like and make me an offer. Or we'll just take it out to market through a broker. So usually brokers on larger assets. On smaller assets, there's like a lot of different resources you can use. You can use um, LoopNet, which is where I think deals go to die. So I don't really like LoopNet, but it's really great for making those broker and seller, direct seller relationships and just practicing. It's like good to get throwaway markets on LoopNet, right? Another place is Crexy. There's also like PropStream. There's, you can skip trace for owners that own like smaller assets, like distressed owners or owners that are maybe ready to retire, mom and pop, like under 150 units, usually you can find on those types of sites. You could look at the MLS, but a lot of those will hit there because it's commercial, not residential. Uh, You can also look on sites like Yardi, Axio, CoStar. All of them have access. You can get access to the owners of each of the individual assets that you're looking at. You can reach out directly to sellers. Property managers are another good resource for you. Vendors. So there's like a lot of places you can find these, but ours are primarily brokers on market. And do you stay in one area or are you nationwide with some of your purchases? No, we're pretty specific about our buy box. So we, as of right now, our target markets are Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Arizona. We own in all of those states except for South Carolina at the moment. We had a deal there earlier this year that fell out of escrow or it didn't actually make it to escrow. It fell out during the negotiation phase. But those are our target markets. We're always underwriting and evaluating new markets in the background, but we tend to study our markets for at least a year to two years before we enter those markets. Can I ask, how do you go about finding investors? And maybe it's easier now because you have such a name in the market. Well, when I started, it was really hard. No one wanted to invest because they were like, oh, connect me when it's your second deal or your third deal, right? Like it was really tough. But now most of our investors... They find us through word of mouth, through referrals. They'll hear me on a podcast. They'll see me speak on a stage or like another investor will be like, hey, we're invested with Vibe. We really love it. You should check it out. And then they'll come in through that. But a lot of our investors, most of our investors are repeat investors with us. So the vast majority of our investors are in two or more deals with us. 
I know historically you have been so successful and you've been able to turn profits back over to the investors pretty quickly. Yeah. Can we talk about the ugly side? Like, yeah, yes, we should. And through COVID, you know, with interest rates spiking in the last year, the home market prices going through the roof over the last three years. What is yeah. it like your business? It's definitely been tougher. So I think what we are seeing right now is a recalibration of the market. Through COVID, actually, we did phenomenal. We had our, the best deal I ever bought and sold. I bought in November or sorry, October 26th, I think it was end of October, 2020. We bought it for $80 million. And 18 months later, we exited for a $30 million profit. Wow. Massive exit. Now with that though, that was in June of 2022 that we exited that deal. So we bought in end of 2020, exited June of 2022. Immediately after we exited that, interest rates just spiked. And at that time, even in 2021, people thought we were crazy because we were underwriting for interest rate increases and we were planning for that on pro forma because we were like, there's no way this is going to last forever and ever and ever. Like we're going to start seeing interest rate movement because inflation is so high. And that's the only lever that the Fed has to pull when interest rates are high. And so we were already planning for that. What we didn't know, though, was how sharply they were going to rise, like how quickly it was going to happen. And that took everybody by surprise, including us, who we people were actually like making fun of us because they were like, you're too conservative. And we're like, no. And now in hindsight, we weren't even conservative enough. And so what we're seeing on a lot of our assets is the assets performing really well. Our NOI is either at or above where we thought it was going to be or it's within like a very narrow range of where we thought it was going to be. The challenge we're seeing, though, is below the line, the interest has more than doubled. And so we went and we have rate caps on all of our deals. So thankfully, we're not as stressed out as some other owners are, but our rate caps were met pretty much immediately in 2022 as interest rates just spiked. And so what happens is when you have that quick of a doubling of an interest rate, your cash flow below the line gets pretty much wiped out. So it was hard because we, when we had maybe an extra 150K in cash flow that we could pay to investors, all of a sudden that's going to interest payments. So that's definitely a tougher conversation to have with investors. And especially investors, they don't really understand exactly how the market is sensitive to interest rates when we already bought this asset and have owned it and have been performing on it, why the sudden change can be jarring for investors. But what I will say is we see a lot of family office money, a lot of high net worth individuals, they're now shoveling money into the market because they realize that this is the time that there's opportunity because most investors are scared right now and they're holding back. So this is the classic Warren Buffett line. Be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. And like, this is the moment where really savvy money is being very greedy and shoveling money into multifamily or other asset classes that tend to do well even through market cycles. So this is more of a time to buy despite the higher prices and the higher interest rates? With the big asterisk that you have to buy correctly. So interest rates, you know, most savvy investors, they're not going to be all that bothered by interest rates being high because there are many ways to buy deals. Like we just bought a deal. It was a little over 130 million and our interest rate on it is 2.95%. And we bought it in August of 2023. 
how did we do that? Right. Like that's the yeah. question everyone wants to know. Cause your husband is in this business. He did our mortgage, by the way, had a great experience with him. So highly recommend him for anybody that's looking to do a mortgage or a refinance on their house. We love Doug. He's great, but he's not getting you a mortgage for 3% right now. Mm-hmm. He's good, but he's not even that good. <laughs> what we're doing is we bought that deal with a loan assumption. So we assumed a loan that was originated back when interest rates were 2.77%. And there's a seven-year interest-only component, meaning for the next seven years, I'm not paying anything other than IO. And there's a 12-year fixed term on this. So that means I can hold it for 12 years and only pay 2.95% interest. And the reason it went from 2.77 to or 77 to 2.95 is because we added a supplemental loan on it, which means we borrowed another 8 million, give or take, above the loan balance that we assume. And that 8 million was at a higher interest rate because it's at today's interest rate. But blended, that means our total interest on all of our debt is 2.95%. And it runs concurrent to the underlying loan. So these are the types of deals that if you find those, those are the types of deals you should be aggressively pursuing, not deals with floating interest rates with no rate caps. Like that's just way too risky and dangerous, in my opinion. Um, so we don't pursue those types of deals. But deals like this, I would do this every day of the week and twice on Sundays. That's amazing. I hadn't even thought about getting assumable loans. Yeah. Huge, you know, multi-million dollar properties. Yeah. I, I didn't know you could do it until I had been doing this for a while. Honestly, like I said, I didn't even know people like me could own multifamily. Like we were accredited investors, right? Like my husband and I were making enough money to be considered accredited. And it wasn't until I got into this space that I found out that we could have been investing in these types of deals back in 2012, 2013, 2014. I just didn't know until I started doing it. And that's crazy to me. It's just like knowledge is so powerful because when you know more, you can do more. So thinking about someone who wants to be you when they grow up, <laughs> you say, how would you get started? So I, if I could go back and redo everything, the biggest mistake I made was I never realized the power of being in the right rooms. What I always thought was when you have these like conferences with like a VIP ticket or you have these like masterminds or mentorship, I always was like, I don't need to pay someone to learn what NOI is, I can Google that. And so I've never paid for a mentorship. I've never paid for a VIP ticket ever, which now that I am where I am now and I'm like looking in hindsight, I'm like, that is the craziest and dumbest thing I ever did. And here's why, because now I'm in all of those rooms. I speak at all of these masterminds. I teach at all of these workshops. I am in the VIP sections because I'm speaking at these conferences. So I'm going and hanging out with the people there. And what I realize now being in that room is I'm not paying to learn what NOI is. I was right. I could Google that. You can Google that. That is not what you're paying for. What you're paying for behind those paywalls is you're paying for a mindset. You are now around other people who have invested actively in themselves and in their education and in their knowledge base. So just the mindset there alone for me would have been worth it because it could have taken me further faster. But the second thing you're paying for behind those paywalls is partnerships. You're paying for community. You're opening your Rolodex because now if you're in a mastermind with say a hundred people, your Rolodex, and by the way, I say the word Rolodex and I used it on a stage the other day and I was talking to like all these Gen Z people and they're like, 
It's a Rolodex. It's a Rolodex. And I was like, oh my God, why am I so old? I have to assume most people know what a Rolodex is here, but their phone book, right? So now if you're in a mastermind with a hundred people, every single person in their phone is now your contact. Because if I reach out to you and I'm like, hey, Tammy, it's Vina from our mastermind. I really need a mortgage broker. You're going to be like, amazing. Here's Doug. Let me give you his contact info. But if you and I were in proximity like that, I might not have ever known that and I might not have ever had that experience. So it's finding a community is so much more than just the technical knowledge. And so I always tell people, go out and get the technical knowledge and it's available all for free. You can go on like YouTube, you can go on Instagram. Like I have a free Facebook group where I do hours and hours and hours of just free calls, just talking about the technical side. Because I don't think that that's knowledge that needs to be like paywalled, right? But when you find the right community, find the right people, find your partners. Like this is a partnership game. If you have a great team, you can go so much further than if you do this yourself. You will need a team. But go to those places where people have already taken positive action. Otherwise, what happens is you'll do what I did and you'll find a lot of partners that are tire kickers or they're not really up to par or they don't have the same work ethic as you or they're not willing to make the investment into themselves like they should. And you'll make a lot of mistakes with partnerships, which will be very expensive for you. Trust me, I know this. So skip that and go somewhere where you can find your people, find your support system, find your knowledge base, find your new friends that you'll hang out with. Hang out in those places. Like Financial Residency, the Facebook group is a great resource, right? And there's a lot of free education in there. And that's, you know, that's where you should start. Hang out in there. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. No one doing more than you will ever fault you for trying to start somewhere, ever. That's fantastic advice. What about someone who's not trying to recreate the wheel? How do they want to join to be part of investment groups like what you have? Yeah, so there are a lot of people out there that will tell you, like, you have to pay to be part of an ecosystem to get access to investments. That's not true. You can literally go to anybody's website and there will most likely be a investor, an investor portal there that you can go and you can log into. Like you can go to vivefunds.com and you can log into our investor portal and you can see all of our investments. Now, we do only accept accredited investors and we're very stringent about our process around it. But you could go in there and you can look at those deals and you can come into those deals if you're an accredited investor. And Every sponsor that's worth their salt will have some kind of process to add you to their mailing list. And I always tell investors, go and sign up on like 20, 50, 100 different people's mailing lists and just start looking at deals because my deals are not a good fit for everybody. And every one of my deals is not a good fit for all of my investors. So go and find those sponsors that you like their strategy, you trust their strategy, that you think can actually like lead you through tough times because when markets are good, everybody's a great investor. It's when markets aren't good that you want to really be paying attention to who you're invested with. So go find those people and generate those relationships with them, create those relationships with them. And you don't need a hundred sponsors. You need like one, maybe two in every asset class you want to be invested in. So you could find one for multifamily. You could find one for self-storage. You could find one for short-term rentals. You could find one for debt on single-family homes. There's so many different ways to do private placements. And you can go find a sponsor that is a really good fit for your goals and your alliances, or sorry, your goals and your 
risk tolerance and create that alliance with them and then invest in their deals. And that should be what you do. And also, I want to say this because this is like a very physician-focused podcast, and I see this happen. About 70% of our investors are physicians. And one thing I always see from physicians time and time again is, oh, my partner invested or my residency director invested, so I'm going to make this investment too. This is personal finance. That means it's personal to you. So because it's a good investment for me, it doesn't mean it's a good investment for you because it depends on a lot of factors, right? Like how much med school debt are you carrying? What are your payments? Do you have kids that are about to graduate and need to be, you need to pay for college and you're playing catch up there? Did you buy a house that you really probably couldn't afford? These are all things that need to be taken into consideration. So when you're doing that, make sure that you're either making this decision for your own personal portfolio or ask your business advisors, your financial planners, your CPAs, your tax strategists, all of those people should be involved in these decisions with you because they need to really help you make these decisions if you can't make them on your own. And so don't uh, investing because your partner invested is not a good reason to invest. There should be more behind it. That makes sense. Yeah. Let me ask you a basic question. You talked about being an accredited investor. How do you become an accredited investor? Yeah, this is a good question. Okay, so there's a couple of different ways, but 99% of investors are going to meet it through one of two primary ways. Either you have to have a income of $200,000 or more for two years with a reasonable expectation of maintaining that. So that means, you know, you graduate residency, you start an attending position or you go into private practice or academics or whatever, you're probably making $200,000 or more. And two years after you graduate and you're working in your attending position, you'll probably meet that definition if you're making over that 200K. The caveat for that though, is if you're married, then you have to have a combined income of $300,000 or more. If you are married and you make $200,000 and let's say Doug make $10,000, sorry, Doug, I'm going to, I'm going to push it down, right? A little bit, but you're making 200, he's making 10,000. Combined, you guys cannot be accredited, but you individually can be an accredited investor because you're meeting the threshold. So that's like one major way is through income. The other major way is through net worth. So that means you have to have a million dollars of net worth, excluding your primary home. So the equity I have in my primary house, if I take that out, do I still have assets minus liabilities? Do I still have a million dollars or more in net worth? The answer is yes, then you're an accredited investor. Now, to prove it, it depends on the type of investment you're making. So on a regulation D, 506B, like boy, or a regulation CF, which is a regulation crowdfund or a reg A investment, those are securities exemptions. For all of those, you don't have to be accredited. And on a Reg D 506B, you can actually self-attest that you're accredited or not because you're supposed to have a substantive relationship with the sponsor. Now, we don't do any of those, at least not today. Today, we do 506C raises, which means that we cannot accept that, you know, I say, hey, Dr. Krause, are you an accredited investor? And you tell me yes. And I'm like, okay, great. I have to actually get take reasonable steps to verify your accreditation. So what we do is we refer you to a third party. So it could be your tax advisor, it could be your broker dealer, it could be your financial advisor, your attorney, somebody who has reasonable knowledge and intimate knowledge of your total financial picture. We ask them to write us a letter with their license number and everything, or fill out a form that we have and give that to us. That's one way to get the accreditation verification. 
Another way to do it is to go to a third-party site. There are sites like verifyinvestor.com. It costs like 60 or 70 bucks. They'll You upload everything to them. They'll generate a letter for you and that letter can be issued to us and then we can take that and use that as a reasonable step. So you might be accredited without even knowing it, especially if you fall into one of those two categories. And there's a lot of other ways you can meet it. Like if you're a family office with more than 5 million in investable assets, if you have taken certain series 7, 63, 65, there's maybe 22, there's a few licenses that will make you accredited. If you're a knowledgeable employee of the fund that you're investing into, that can also make you accredited. So there's a lot of different ways you can be accredited, but the two primary are net worth and income. What have I not asked you today that I should have asked you today? I think this is a really good question because I think I usually with investors, when they're asking me questions, I'm like, okay, here are the questions you haven't asked me. So I'll talk about more from like vetting a sponsor perspective. So if you're looking to invest with a sponsor, some of the questions you should be asking, my favorite question to ask, if you can only ask one question, is tell me about a time that something went wrong and what happened. And the answer you want is a very clear example of something that has gone very wrong on an asset, but you are looking for the follow-up of what they did to mitigate it and how they reacted to it and what they've learned from it to make sure it doesn't happen in the future. And sometimes there's not going to really be an answer of how you can prevent it in the future, right? Like COVID was a really big struggle for a lot of sponsors. I can't prevent a global pandemic from happening again, but I can take reasonable steps to make sure that we're protecting against it, right? So maybe now we have a continuity protocol for pandemic issues that arise, right? Like, so those are all things that you can be really considering and thinking about as you're going through this is like, okay, here's the problem. How do we solve it and learn from it? So that's the one question you want to ask a sponsor. And if you get a sponsor that says, we never had an issue or they shy away from the question or they don't tell you that, it's a big red flag. You should not walk away. You should run away because either they have not been in business long enough to have had anything go wrong, which is an issue, or they are lying to you. And I don't know which one is worse. So you really want to make sure that you're with a sponsor who is comfortable talking to you about the tougher times because it's not when things are going well that you see the true colors of your sponsor. It's when things are not going well. How do they communicate with you? Second, I like to ask them, do you invest in your own deals? Like, I always like to know if they have skin in the game. It's not a deal breaker by any means, but I want to know that you're invested and you have interest in this more than just my money going into it, right? And I also want to know, like, if you're not invested, do you have what I call aligned capital? So that means, like, are the people that have to come to your house for Christmas and Thanksgiving, are is their money in this? Because that's just as good to me as the sponsor's money, right? Like, my parents are invested in my deals. Like, they have retirement funds in our deals. My in-laws are investing in our deals. So for me, that's aligned capital. Someone's parents and in-laws or sister or brother or cousins, like if they're in the deals, that's pretty much a very solid investment in my opinion. I also like to ask them what the communication level is post-close. I've invested in some deals where I don't hear from the sponsor at all. And it'll be months and months and months and I'll be like, hey, we haven't gotten any communication. What's happening? But the good sponsors will have at least some kind of a monthly communication to you or quarterly. But the important thing is they set the expectation ahead of time and then they follow through on what that expectation is. So I think like those are the big things that I would ask a sponsor as I'm betting them. Uh, and then, you know, you can always ask the, the question of, have you ever 
lost money on a multifamily investment or whatever investment, like on self-storage, have you ever lost money or have you ever lost investor dollars in multifamily? And the reason I like to ask that question is not because it's a problem if they've lost money. These are investments. They all have risk. There's a chance that you're going to lose your money. I really want to get to the bottom of why and how that money got lost and what went wrong versus, okay, money was lost or not lost. Like I've lost money in investments at many times and I tend to take riskier investments. So I expect to lose that money, but I go into it knowing that there's a risk and I'm okay if it's market conditions. I'm not okay if the sponsor like took it and bought a Lamborghini, right? Like there's a difference. So you want to know and understand why the sponsor lost money. All good advice. Yes. I've learned a thing or two over the last decade plus that I've been in this game. I know you've been so successful at it and I'm so grateful to you for coming on the show and just having this about, you know, the investment side both from your side and the people that you work with and bring into your fun. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be here. And thank you for letting me serve your community. If someone wanted to learn more about you, Vina, how would they get in touch with you or look at your company a little more closely? Yeah. So you can go to VibeFunds, V-I-B-E-F-U-N-D-S.com if you want to look at our investment opportunities. If you want to connect with me on social media, you can find me on like Instagram and like TikTok and Facebook and all the places. It's just Vina Jetty, V-E-E-N-A-J-E-T-T-I. If you want to actually be active and learn, join my free Facebook group. It's called Mastering Multifamily with Vina Jetty. Um, there's like questions you have to answer. It'll automatically accept you. And then you'll meet a lot of other sponsors in there. You'll meet partners in there. You'll be able to ask your questions. You, even as a passive investor, you can ask questions in there. But we do a lot of like free education in there. We do a lot of Zoom calls. And there's always people willing to help you if you're just starting out and you need some extra help. So, you know, come hang out. It's, you know, low stakes because it's a free Facebook group. Awesome. Do you mind if I post that in our group online? Absolutely. Please. I would love to have everybody there. All right. Well, Vina, thank you again for coming on the show today. I'm so grateful to you. Appreciate you. Thank you. And I hope you'll all tune in again next week for Grand Round. For more information about alternative investments and asset management, visit EckerdEnterprises.com. And remember, Eckerd Enterprises is your gateway to tangible assets and lasting financial success. Visit Eckerd today.